sermons. So this morning we're talking about what it means to meditate on the Word of God. We'll be doing that from Psalm 119. So get out a Bible or the sheet in front of you. Uh, Psalm 119, I'll talk more about this in a second, is the longest chapter in the Bible at 176 verses. So I don't have all 176 there on your sheet, but I do have the ones we'll talk about directly. So uh, if you want to get your Bible out or a Bible app on your phone to look at the others this morning, I invite you to do that. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Father, we love you. We recognize even as I pray that, um, admittedly, and, and as my brothers here, that um, though you have put that love in our hearts, we don't always uh, feel that love. We don't always express it. Um, we confess even this morning, sometimes we love other things. And that certainly mirrors the way that we see your word for us. There are times where, if we're honest, um, it's, it is frustrating for us. Um, it's exhausting. It feels like a chore and other times when it is uh, truly a joy. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as men to be honest with this great gift that you've given us, your very word in our hands, um, that we would not only revere it, but that we would see it as a great gift for us to enjoy and to feast upon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know when it happened, but uh, at some point in the last 10 years or so, I began to love food. I don't know how many of you love food. I know all of us need it, but I mean, I really love it. Uh, part of that, I guess, is I, I've been blessed with a good metabolism. Don't let this physique uh, fool you. I, I, there's hard to know what's going on internally here. That's probably not good. Um, but I, I love food. I even now, uh, and maybe this is just as older I get, I, I love to watch chefs. Uh, a friend of mine became a chef, actually got his... Um, Sommelier, Matt was a master's, I mean, it's crazy, uh, one of the hardest things you can get and, uh, in the chef world. And, and so, you know, watching Iron Chef America and uh, Chef's Table and some of these things, and watching how the art of making food and what it means to really sit down and enjoy food. Now, I love food. My wife, it's not that she doesn't love it, she just doesn't care. And so you can imagine when we go on a date, I'm the one that wants to go to a, a restaurant that it's going to be delicious and experience. And she's like, look, it's just a, a means to an end. And, and some of you are probably that way, right? There's probably both camps this morning in this room. For some of you today, you're looking forward to your lunch or your dinner, what you're going to eat. And for others of you, you're like, look, it's just a means to an end. Other of you are going to completely skip lunch because it's just getting in your way to accomplish what you want to do. And the reality is whether you enjoy food or not, it's essential. You can't just, you can skip maybe a meal or two, but if you were to skip every meal for weeks on end, you would eventually die. We, we have to have it. And so it's amazing that we have this thing that's essential for us. It's one of um, a, a resource that we have to have, right? Food, shelter, water, what's one of the big three. And yet of those three things, it's one of these things that we actually, you can eat just to get sustenance, but you can also eat to get sustenance and actually really delight in it, to really enjoy it. It's interesting then that when you think about the Word of God and the Bible, that throughout the Bible, throughout the Scriptures, the metaphor of the Word of God being our food happens over and over again. It's not in the Psalms. 
It's in the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to read this to you. If you want to just write down this verse, you can go back and look at it for yourself. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He says, your word was found and I ate it. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Why would Jeremiah use this metaphor, the idea of having the word of God and eating it and delighting in it? Because like food, the word of God is essential for us. It's not optional. I think many times as we think about the word of God, we see it as a chore. We see it as something we're supposed to do. And yes, that's true. We are supposed to do it, but not because it's begrudging, not because it's a rule or or something we're obligated to do, but because if we don't, spiritually speaking, we will shrivel up. We will begin to, to die, spiritually speaking. So it's essential. But what I want us all to see this morning, and admittedly we'll talk about this, this is not always the case, is as Jeremiah says, as he eats the word of God, what happens? He sees that it's a delight. That, that the word of God being our food is not just because it's essential, not just because it's our sustenance, but because it really is our joy. It really is our joy. As we think about the Protestant Reformation this month, one of the things that is so hard for us to fathom is that this book was not always accessible. Four or five hundred years ago, this book would not be as accessible as it is today. No printing press, so we don't have it. But even more than that, that it would have been in a language that you cannot understand. And even in many ways, you would have felt a social and even ecclesiological pressure that this is not for you to read on your own. That you are not allowed to do that. You get, that's something the pastor or priest must do for you. And many men actually died so that we could now have this in our hands, in our own language. Why did they do that? because they recognize the great gift that God has given us in his word. The word of God is his revelation. It is his word for us. And we must pull up a chair to the table and feast upon it. And so this morning we're looking at Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter of the Bible. It's 176 verses. It's written as an acrostic poem. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, eight verses per Hebrew letter. So you go through the Hebrew alphabet. With each one, you have a different eight-verse section of this entire 176-verse poem. Now, what's so amazing that you're not going to be able to see in your English Bible is that the first letter of each verse of each section begins with that particular letter. Okay, with me? Are you confused? I know it's early and cold and rainy. So let me, let me put it like this, in English terms. If you're going to sit down and write a poem that's 176 lines long, and for whatever reason you feel like it'd be great to follow the English alphabet, then you'd start with the letter A, and the first eight verses you would write would all have to begin with the letter A. And it would have to be intelligible. <laughs> and then you would move on, verse 9, to the letter B, And the next eight verses would begin with the letter B, every verse. And then you go to letter C, and I think you're recognizing, okay, this is hard, but at least with the first five or six letters, this is doable until you get to the end. And now you're at X, 
and Y and Z, how do you pull this off? That's what's happening. You can't see it in the Hebrew. It's one of the most complex poems ever written. And every single verse, just about except for three, is about the word of God. Every one. It is a a poem in the Bible about the Bible. The word of God about the word of God and why it is everything for us as Christians. That's what we're going to look at this morning as men. As we do this, and we'll do this at our tables, I want you to be honest this morning. Like many of the spiritual disciplines, these great things that we've been given, we turn them into chores. We turn them into these things that we have to do, and so it's a struggle. Let's talk about the struggle this morning. Uh, There is no shame uh, for you this morning if reading the Bible is new to you. Uh, If if you're one of those people when a a pastor says, let's turn to this page and you're going to the table of contents, hoping nobody sees, that's okay. Uh, If reading the Bible is easy for you, I I don't want you to think that um, that makes you some sort of special Christian. Because it is possible to be very learned about the Bible and to know lots of stuff about it, but not know the God behind the Bible. Do you know what I mean? And so we need to push past that. I think in many ways, sometimes we can even hide behind that. That we can first go to um, commentaries or thoughts about what the Word of God means without really asking, what does the Word of God mean for me? And what is God trying to say to me? That's really what we have to wrestle with this morning. All right, so this is God's Word for us. We're going to talk about this in several different ways. The first is this. The Word of God is revelation. The Word of God is revelation. What does that mean? It's God himself revealed to us. It is what we call in the Presbyterian church a means of God's grace. In other words, this is God speaking to us. Not just spoken uh, to the people who wrote it many, many years ago. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that it is now living. It's active. So it's not just a dead letter or just an ancient book like some of the other ancient uh, works that we have, but it is alive now. It is God's very word spoken to us and being spoken over us. And so what we have to, the first thing we have to wrestle with is, do you actually believe that? And not just here, but do you believe it here? It's one thing to hold this in your hand and say, yes, okay, this is God's word, and that's what it's called. Okay, I get that it's revelation, that it's uh, him speaking to us. But to really believe that this is God speaking to you right here and right now, that takes some pause. And that takes some reverence. That takes a posture of worship. And it takes the reality that you cannot approach this like any other book. It's not a rule book. It's not a textbook. It's not a science book. It's not a novel. It is something completely different. It is God revealed to us. Every word, every page, every verse, inerrant and inspired and holy. The first eight verses, you have them in your, uh, on your sheet there, of Psalm 119. Speak to the word of God as do the rest. What's unique about these first eight verses is you could look at them as in many ways an introduction to the whole of Psalm 119. And in these eight verses, you have five different synonyms or five different ways to describe the Word of God. So just to orient ourselves, what is God's revelation for us? I want to point them out to you. 
five different ways to think about God's word. And if you just took any one of them, that would just be one aspect. And you'll begin to see a bit of a theme, but taken as a whole, you begin to truly understand what does it mean that God's word is revealed to us? It is his holy and errant inspired word, him speaking directly to his people. All right, so the first way we see this is verse one. We see that God's word is the law. It's the law. Verse one, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The word law is used in Psalm 119 25 times. A law is exactly what you would think it would be. It's instruction. Uh, It could be teaching, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just laws like you think about, say, the laws of our country. But for the Hebrew people, the law was, in many ways, the whole Bible, what they had, the Old Testament. That when they said the law, they were meaning, well, it's the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible, right? Not just the, the laws that you would read in Exodus or Deuteronomy, but all of it. Um, they, they would see it as really uh, Jesus himself would talk about the law, right? And the prophets. I mean, the entire Old Testament, they would talk about as the law. God's written down command to his people. Now, we'll talk about this in a second, but I think this is one of our, initially, one of our big hang-ups with coming to God's word, is we feel like it's constricting to us, right? It exposes us for who we are, the, the reality that we don't live up to God's law, and we don't like that. But as we'll dive deeper in this morning, I think one of the things we'll, we'll also recognize is, but that's why we need it. We need the, God's law to pierce us through, to show us the ways that not just we're lacking, but that we desperately need him and we need redemption. So it's the law. Second, verse two, God's word is called his testimonies. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek them with their whole heart. Okay, the word testimonies, uh, this appears 23 times in Psalm 119. So this would refer to an ordinance, uh, a standard, So uh, think about it this way, Um, not just a a rule to live by, but a benchmark. Something that this is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to be like him. Um, You could see this as uh, what God is speaking as his will for us, what he desires for us. Uh, A lot of times you'll see this uh, translated not just as testimonies, but as his decrees. All right, so first, it's his law. Second, his testimonies. Verse four, look with me. Precepts. This occurs 21 times in Psalm 119. You know what a precept is? It's, it's like an injunction or an order given by a judge. So God is, is not just giving these laws as um, a king who doesn't know what he's doing, but he's a, he's a just and good judge. He is wise. And the precepts that come from him are wise. They're coming as if they're coming from a court being handed down. Fourth, uh, the the first eight verses talk about the law, right? The uh, precepts, the testimonies. They also talk about uh, God's word being statutes. Statutes, that's in verse five. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Statutes occurs 21 times literally means things inscribed, things inscribed. These are laws that are in effect, right? Laws that are in effect, they are active for us. And lastly, we'll see this uh, verses six and seven, but they are 
uh, commandments. The Word of God um, contains God's commands for us. Okay, so verse 6, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The word commandments is used 22 times in Psalm 119, right? Defines a, an authoritative command given by God himself. Okay, so a couple things should be going through your mind right now, right? There's a theme, his commands, his rules, his laws, his precepts. And you should think to yourself, if you're honest, and maybe this describes you, is, well, why would I want to read that? Um, I mean, at best, unless you just geek out over laws, um, right, it seems kind of dry, kind of dull. At worst, you're like, well, why would I want to sit around and just read God's rules all the time? Like, to be some kind of Christian hall monitor, thinking about other people, thinking about myself, thinking about all of these things and just recognizing I don't live up to any of them, or the opposite, to pat yourself on the back and say, well, I've got that one down, I've got this one down, I've got that one down. And I think admittedly, we feel that way. We feel that way, especially as we approach the Bible. I have a friend of mine, um, a dear friend, um, and we did ministry together. He would tell you that he has never been able to really read the Bible for himself. And, you know, years and years ago, this would have been 10 years ago, one of the, his excuses that he would use, and I, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, it's just he would just say, look, I, I'm not a reader. And maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you're, you're thinking about, look, I'm not, I don't sit, sit around and read lots of books. And so to come and sit down and read this, and that was him. He's like, look, it's just not what I do. And so I, I would rather just listen to somebody else tell me about the Word of God, right? And I get a lot out of that. I get a lot out of uh, going to Bible study like this or or, you know, listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning or even a, on a podcast, you know, that's what I want to do. Fast forward 10 years later, and his faith is deeply struggling. In many ways, I think you could say he's not really walking with the Lord. Now, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? I mean, is it because he wasn't reading the Word of God? You know, I, I think honestly, when he said, I, I, didn't, I don't want to read I think it had more to do with he just didn't want to read because he doesn't like reading. I think you recognize that what's in here uh, at times is difficult for us. It exposes us. It reveals who we really are. And one of the things that you can do to avoid that is to hide. And you can hide behind, well, other people telling you what the Word of God says, behind a pastor or a preacher you can hide behind commentaries or books about the Word, but there is no substitute for sitting down and reading the Word of God for yourself. Because when you do, you're looking at God's very command for you. Now again, why would we want to do that? Well, the second thing I want you to see about God's Word is that in God's Word, it brings freedom. It brings freedom. There is actually great freedom in His commands. There's great freedom in His law. As you read the first eight verses of Psalm 119, you see words like delight, joy. How, how could somebody authentically say that, that they just love to sit down and read God's law? Because in these pages, in God's word, we find freedom, not undue constraint. Let me show you what I mean. Why don't you look at verse 32? So you're, you might have to skip around a little bit. I'm going to be all over the place on your sheet. 
verse 32. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, I will run, not walk. I will run in the way of your commandments. Not just in my walk, but I'm going to run. I'm going to have a sense of urgency. I'm going to run in the way of what you command me to do when you enlarge my heart. What does that mean? And what it means to have an enlarged heart. What does it feel like? Right? Fullness, joy. Let me give you another example. Verse 45. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Again, there's another word. Precepts, right? The decrees of a judge. So he's saying, look, I will walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. What is a wide place? What does that mean? Well, we see the psalm speak of this uh, elsewhere. Uh, psalm 18, verse 19, he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What, what is a broad place? How, what is the Bible talking about? Safe, a will. Think about it, I mean, figuratively, literally. I don't know if you've ever been on one of our silent retreats, or you've ever been to Ute Trail, Sky Ranch in Colorado. But... Um, there is, a, a, it's kind of in this dip of a valley. There's mountains on either side. And you can cross over the road, cross over a river, and hike up into the mountains across that are in a protected national forest. And as you hike up in there, pretty quickly you get to a clearing and a giant grass meadow. And the last time I was there, as I was walking totally by myself in the middle of October, I came upon a few uh, moose, moosen. What do we decide the plural of that is? Moose. A few moose, right? By myself. I don't have a gun. I don't have bear spray. It's just me, and I've got one of these. <laughs> um, so I kept my distance, but I also, because, I mean, how often do you get to do this? Um, I also kind of followed them a little bit in this wide open clearing. It's beautiful. I think that's what it's talking about. The idea of this wide open space, this meadow, this pasture, this place of great freedom where you can run and explore and feast and feed a broad place, a wide open place, a place of freedom. That's what the psalmist says the word, the law is like. It doesn't bring constraint. It brings freedom. How does it do that? My daughter's both just got a um, bicycle. Why did we do that? Well, um, my oldest uh, had some dental work that needed to happen. And so uh, for her very first tooth fairy uh, gift, she got a bike. Now I realize we, it was a bonehead parent move, right? There's nowhere, <laughs> we're just going downhill from that. Uh, but we'd been talking about getting them bicycles for a while. And of course, then my, my middle daughter, uh, Margaret, you know, of course she, if, Look, big sister gets a bike, she's going to have to get a bike. Otherwise, no one's going to be happy. Anyway, so they got bikes. They're learning. They're on training wheels. We live on McComas. McComas is a through street. People drive pretty fast. You can imagine with this great gift of a bike and the freedom that they now feel riding that bike, they also came a lot of rules about what it means to ride on a very busy street. Where they can go, where they can't go, who needs to be with them, how they ride, all of that, you could say, well, does that feel constraining? Absolutely it does. But it's to give them not just safety, 
but so they can ride freely as much as they want without fear of being hurt. So the law of God is for us. It's for our good. It's for our flourishing. It doesn't bring undue constraint. It brings freedom. Now, the problem with us this morning, if we're going to be honest, is, well, we like to be in charge. And the law of God, what it reveals to us is though we want to be in charge, deep down we know we shouldn't be. Because God alone is the one who is just, who is wise. All right, so third thing, the word is wisdom. The word brings wisdom. Look at verse 105. You may have heard this verse before. It's a fairly popular one when it comes to the verses of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That's verse 130. So the theme here is that the word, as we read it, it's like a lantern. It's a light in the darkness. It shows where we need to go. Right? In the word, we have wisdom. Right? When we talked about the, the Proverbs a few semesters ago, the idea that in, in God's word, his revealed word to us, there's wisdom. and it's, 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 a, it's a guide for us. It shows us the way that we are called to go. Now, here's what's frustrating about that. It's if you read the Bible as just a guidebook, an instruction manual, then you're going to be very frustrated very fast. And so you find yourself saying, well, um, if this is the, a, a light to my feet and a lamp to my path, then I'm thinking about my day-to-day and what I have to do in a meeting I'm not looking forward to because it's going to have a lot of conflict. And you think about the particular way that that's going to be conflict, and you know it's going to involve something somebody said in an email that you've got to confront, right? And so you look in the back in the concordance, and you look for the word email in the E's, and it's, it's not there, right? Obviously, it's you know, tongue-in-cheek, but I think we approach it that way sometimes. I Maybe mean, it's not that exactly, but you could even look up the word conflict, and then, depending on the course, you might find it, the word conflict, but it's going to take you to a different kind of conflict, right? The conflict between um, Israel and the Palestinians, right? So, uh, so what, what do you have to do with this? <laughs> how, how do you approach the Bible if it really is a, a light to your feet and, and you're reading it? And yet you, you find yourself and you're, you don't know how to approach it. It doesn't seem relevant to you. One of the great hallmarks of the Reformation, or five of them, is sola scriptura. Right? Scripture alone. And what we mean by that, and you find it throughout lots of different Protestant creeds and confessions, is that the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. Why, what do we mean by that? Well, this is God's word. It's revealed to us. And his revelation is now closed. There is nobody who can come up now and say, well, I now have God's revealed word. If they're doing so, they're being blasphemous. Especially, yes, if it's contradicting his word, but if also claiming to speak for God himself. Now, we we get in trouble with that sometimes. Um, The problem with that, as you can imagine, is what if they're wrong? So, I mean, greatest example of that is these doomsday preachers who say the world's going to end, right? And so if I told you, well, the the world's going to end on October the 11th, 2017, and this is what God has revealed to me, and this is what I tell you, the problem is, well, tomorrow when that does not happen, who are you questioning other than me? Well, God himself, right? That's what it means to blaspheme him. 
This is God's word. It's revealed to us. It's closed. But it also, the only rule of faith and practice, Scripture alone means that we don't need any other guide, right? While it does not speak um, systematically, like here's the section on conflict, and here's the section on emails, and here's the section on, it speaks to all of life, every aspect of life, because it speaks to our humanity. It speaks to who we are as being made in the image of God. It speaks to Christ's divinity and who he is and what God has done for us. It speaks to the gospel itself from start to finish. And so it speaks to every part of life, but in a way that we don't always expect. It brings wisdom. And so as we read the word of God, if we just approach it like a guidebook, we're going to get really, really frustrated. We shouldn't approach it that way. Part of what we should be doing is approaching it with a more of a posture of listening. That perhaps God's light to our feet is not a light we would normally look for. Or perhaps the path that it's illuminating for us is a path that we would not take on our own. Right? There is wisdom here. Wisdom for us to follow and to enjoy. Fourth, the word is life-giving. The word is life-giving. Look with me, verse 25. My soul, the psalmist says, clings to dust. So he finds himself afflicted. He finds himself parched, thirsty. He's in a tough spot. And so he says this, give me life. How? According to your word. So the psalmist finds himself afflicted. He finds himself on the outs. And so what does he do? He says, give me life. I need life in this moment. Where does he find it? He finds it in the word. The word is life-giving. Again, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, in your precepts, in your decrees. So turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. This is a great prayer, by the way, as we fight sin and temptation, whatever that might be, that we would turn our eyes from the idols that we pine after and we would fix our eyes on his word because in here we have life. Uh, Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me Give me life according to your promise. The promises of God are here in the word of God. Right? And he's saying, give me life, redeem me. Okay, so how does the Bible give us life? How does the Bible give us life? Well, in these pages, we find the beauty of redemption. God's covenant love from his people from Genesis to Revelation. We read about the way that he made us, the way that he has loved us, and the way that though we are faithless, he is faithful. And the problem, of course, with all of this is that we um, can know a lot about the word and yet not find life in the word. And this is one of the things that Jesus constantly said to the Pharisees, right? In his day, the Pharisees knew the word of God better than anyone else. They knew the whole Old Testament backwards and forwards. They had it memorized uh, they could school you in a Bible drill so fast. Uh, I mean, they, they knew it, and yet they didn't know the God of it. Uh, John 5, uh, verse 39, this is Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and as they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All right, I'm going to read that again. Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think in here you have eternal life. And yet you refuse to come to me 
that you might have life. It is possible to know a lot about what's in these pages, to even know that it offers redemption, to know it offers life itself, and yet not really find life. So how do we do that? The last thing that I want you to see about God's word this morning. The word's delight. The word is delight. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I'll fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will forget not your word. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. How does the word of God become life and a delight for us? How does it become our joy? How do we feast upon it? How do we savor it? How does it not just sustenance for us, but something we enjoy because Ultimately, what we have to see is that the Word of God is Christ Himself. Christ Himself given to us. That's what sets this book apart from any other. It's Christ Himself given to us. The Gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1, says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John, the word of God, and ere it inspired his gospel, tells us that Jesus Christ is the capital W word. He's word made flesh. Here we have God's word in print, revealed to us, living and active. Jesus is God's revelation, God himself, taken on in fleshly form. It's in his incarnation. And so every single page of this Bible is ultimately about him. It's about him. We see this in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, after he rose again, he came to his disciples, he appeared to them, and this is what he said. He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose again, and they didn't recognize him. And so he says, look, wasn't it necessary that I should die and rise again? And look, if you don't get this yet, as my disciples, having walked with me through three years, let me gather around and let's have a Bible study. And so he opened up the Word of God, and he started with Genesis. And he went through the entire Old Testament, all the scriptures. And what did he do? He said, here's where you see me. Here's where you see me. I think one of the greatest problems that we have with reading the Bible as we think the Bible's about us. And so we read ourselves into its pages and we think, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus Christ from start to finish. Every verse, it's about him. And so as we read the Bible, we shouldn't ask, well, what does this have to do with me? We should ask, what does it have to do with about Jesus? 
What does this teach me about what he has done for me? And now let me ask, well, what does that have to do with me? How is this revealing to me as God's word? What Christ has done for me on the cross and is doing now as he sits at the right hand of God. And so look, the Bible is not just a rule book. It's not a textbook. It's Christ himself revealed to us. So let's feast on it. Because as we feast on God's word, this Bible, we're feasting on Christ himself. So what does that look like? Before you go to your tables, I want to give you an assignment by way of application, something that you could actually practice this week. What does it look like to actually read and meditate on the Word of God? Mark Davis says this a lot. I think it is um, absolutely true. He says, look, everybody meditates. The idea of meditation scares you, and you think that seems really hokey. Everybody meditates. If you worry, you are meditating. If you have a fear that you're thinking about, you're meditating on that fear. If you have anxiety, you are meditating. So we all meditate. The question is, what are you meditating on? What are you fixing your mind on? The idea of fixing your mind on the word of God other than the cares and sins of this world. So what does it look like then to meditate? Let me give you a way that has been immensely helpful for me. Uh, I met with a college student not too long ago. It was probably about six months ago. And he asked me, well, how, do I, how should I read the word? How, how should I read the Bible? I want to really read it. I want to understand it. And so he was looking for a Bible plan. Uh, he was looking for, you know, do you have a recommendation? I'd love to read the Bible in a year. And I, I'm not knocking that. I think that's a great practice. Uh, I recognize that if you've ever tried that before, once you get to um, numbers, uh, you slow down a little bit, right? Or you're like, well, I just need to get through this real fast. I just can't, you know, and, and you skip over a few parts because you want to get to the end. I think that's what he's looking for. And what I said really surprised him. But I said, I, I don't think you, I don't want you to just read to read or read to get through it. And so I shared with them a practice that I've been doing for a, a while now. It's called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. And it's the art of spiritual reading. Now, as I told him, I'm telling you now, uh, he was surprised that a Presbyterian pastor was talking about this. Here's why I think it's been immensely helpful for me. If you've ever been frustrated reading the Word of God, and for me, a lot of times, uh, it's because when I read it, I constantly want to try to figure it out. I want to apply it, and then I want to go teach it. There's a great danger in that for a pastor, that I would not allow the Word of God to do in me what I'm now asking it to do in you. And Lectio Venus has called me to really slow down. It's a practice that is ancient, that's been passed down for centuries, that Benedictine monks practice it as part of their daily rule. And the idea is that you would slowly read God's Word. There are four aspects to it. The first is called Lectio. It just means read it. And so one of the things that I'm going to challenge you to do is to take the first eight verses, they're right there on your page, first eight verses, Psalm 119, and read it. Read it for yourself. The second part of Lectio Divina is called Meditatio. Meditate on the Word. So the second part, pretty simple, read it again. Don't move on to verse 9, no stop, and read the first eight verses again. But this time read very slowly, very deliberatively, very prayerfully. And ask the Lord to focus your heart and mind on one particular verse. Or maybe it's a phrase. Or maybe it's a word. So if you're doing that with Psalm 119, you could just do it verse 1. Let's say you don't even get past the first verse. That's okay. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And perhaps the Lord focuses your eyes on 
what it means to be blameless. And you find yourself focused on that word. The third part is oratio. Pray the text. So if you're focusing on the word blameless, let that guide your prayer. God, search my heart and know me. Where are the ways that I am blameless? Here is the ways that I now feel exposed by that. Here are the ways that I feel like I could be blamed for the things that I have done, the things that I'm thinking now. But then don't just stop there. If I hear the things I'm confessing to you, and here are the things that now I am pleading for redemption, and here are the ways that I'm thankful now that I am no longer blameless because these things have been covered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had no blame. And so I find now that I am blameless, not because of myself, but because he was blameless for me when he died on the cross. See what I'm doing? Allow the word of God to shape and guide your prayer. And the last thing is called contemplatio. It just means to live it. Live out the word. So let's say you do this in the morning. Well, for the rest of the day, return prayerfully to that idea. So maybe it is just one word, the idea of being blameless. And for the rest of your day, think, how can I be blameless today? Not out of my own power, but Christ, that you would be blameless in me. And as I find things that perhaps I need to confess, that I would confess them quickly and ask that you would move in my heart. What's great about that is you might be tempted to read all eight verses of Psalm, uh, the first part of Psalm 119, or for some of you might say, well, I did not successfully read today if I didn't get through all 176. And what this says is slow down and really listen to God's word for you. Let me pray for you. Let's go to our tables and really discuss this, wrestle with this today. Uh, really be honest about um, the joy that you've had reading God's word before and maybe some of the frustrations And really think about how you approach God's word. Do you approach it as God's living and active word for you, his revelation? Or do you approach it like a rule book or a textbook or something that you have to figure out um, intellectually? Uh, This is God speaking to us. It's Christ revealed to us. May he be that for you and for me this morning as we go to our tables. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ, the word. And thank you for sending Also, the lowercase w, the word. This book that we have in our hands that is unlike any other book that we possess. Father, we pray that you would help this to be um, a delight to us. It would recognize in the palm of our hands we we hold a feast. In the palm of our hands we have Christ himself. So, Father, would you speak to us now. Help us to be honest about what it's like to read your word. And we pray as we leave this place, your word would change us, transform us, conform us into the image of the Son. Father, help us now as we discuss these things to leave with a deeper affection for this great gift that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.